Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Recovery Radio, where we discuss substance abuse treatment and recovery. You can listen live at blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Please note that the views and opinions of our hosts and guests are not necessarily the views of OCG, nor is it meant to replace professional advice or the advice of your physician. And now, here's our show, Roach on Recovery, with your host, Oval Roach. Welcome, welcome, folks, to Roach on Recovery. This is your host, Orville Roach, along with my producer, co-host, engineer, call screener, clip dropper, Chris Morales. Last week, I didn't mention your name, by the way. Okay, well, that's all right. As long as they know me as the engineer, I'm good with that. All right, 646-564-9909 is the number. 646-564-9909 is the number if you want to call and speak to us. If you want to listen to the show live, you can go to our show website, and that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Again, that's blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG radio. Okay. Happy recap. Happy recap time. Why don't you start out with your soccer? Well, I am very pleased to announce if the rest of the world has not already tuned in and found out that our United States women representing our country in the game of soccer have won the championship. They won on Sunday. For those of you who watched the game, you had a lot of fun, as did I. For those of you who did not, it was a complete massacre uh, on the field. It, it set all sorts of records for World Cup finals, the most goals ever scored, the most goals ever scored in a short period of time. Uh, they broke all kinds of records anyway. As you well know, and as the host pointed out last week, soccer's very boring because you might get one goal in 90 minutes of play. 
Well, the United States women hung four goals on the Japanese within the first ten minutes, and so the game was over almost before it started, which was um, pretty fun. So congratulations to our United States women. It's time for our men to catch up. And I think it's uh, unfortunate that the Americans are once again picking on the uh, Japanese and <laughs> doing what they do. Hey, that's but, quite all right. But good stuff. Yep. Finally, now, uh, like you said, goodness gracious, when when's the last time the men have even placed first, second, or third? Yeah, the the men have never placed first or second to answer that question and. The highest they've ever placed is third, and I think we were just looking it up online. I think they placed third, and it was 1930. So we're looking at about a century, oh, coming up on a century, uh, where third place was our best finish. And it happened one time. So, yeah, the men have some serious catching up to do. Uh, but as long as all the craziest athletes in the country uh, choose basketball or baseball or football, which, by the way, they're going to get much more heavily and handsomely paid in those leagues in this country mm-hmm. than playing for the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, we are not going to do so well. But they the do World get Cup. paid very well in, in the, in internationally, the guys who play in the big leagues, you know, yeah. in, in England and other parts yeah, of Europe. Spain, yeah, Spain, exactly. Yeah, they can get paid really well to play in those leagues. It's very... Top guys. Yeah, very few and far between that we even farm somebody who's capable of going over there. But we do have our goalkeeper played over there, Tim Howard, and Clint Dempsey is one of our forwards who plays uh, over in a European league. Never heard of them. Yeah. Ex- well, <laughs> case in point, right there. <laughs> um, last week, uh, we did our, our first of our series in uh, our Counselor 101. That's right. We did the role of the Counselor. and The do's and the don'ts. Or- cover the different thing yep. involved in the roles of the role of the That's counselor right. and we're going to continue that counselor 101 series we might do it again next week a different topic yeah um, <clears throat> might i said but in either event an odd occurrence happened last week okay so we did our show tuesday and you know we have our full staff meeting on wednesday the next day <laughs> that's correct and we didn't cover any items on the agenda. No. Because the whole meeting was spent addressing things in the therapeutic community that have to do with... Counselor 101. Counselor 101. <laughs> exactly. I was very, 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 very tempted <laughs> to say, why don't you just go listen to the show we just did yesterday. Dude, the show could become a training uh, tool. Yep. So that's what we spent most of our time on during that staff meeting. Um, I just found that ironic, the timing of that. So maybe some of those who asked a lot of the questions that we dealt with will. Yeah. Because we touched on all those things that they were inquiring about. about, Yeah. Uh, Also, while we were doing our show last Tuesday was the, at some point during the evening, 9 o'clock Pacific, 12 midnight Eastern was the start of NBA free agency. Yeah, uh, 9 o'clock Pacific, yeah. 12 Eastern. Yeah. Right, 12 midnight Eastern. And of once again, I've had to suffer a week <laughs> of disappointment, <laughs> despair, you name it, uh, since my New York Knicks did not do anything noteworthy 
What, what did they do with the thirty-five million? I don't. What, what happened to it? I have no. I have no idea what uh, they, they spent it on. They took it off the table and put it right back into their pockets. <laughs> Unbelievable. Ah. <laughs> All right. Sharing is caring. Okay. Yeah. Uh, just a brief update for folks. Um, my Nana, as we call her, has been released, uh, cleared to be released from the physical therapy setting. The I don't know what you call that, uh, rehab, I guess. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know what you call the facility exactly. But she was cleared to go home, and so she was um, sent home last Thursday, I want to say. So right before the 4th of July weekend. Wonderful. Which uh, was really great. So my wife and I went to see her as well as one of my good friends uh, and check in with her. And she's delighted to be home. And although the progress is slow, it's still positive and she's still headed in the right direction. So happy to report that. For any of you out there listening who have posted comments again on Facebook, and we, we really appreciate the positive thoughts, and that's where she's at. So we're happy to have her home. Okay, good stuff. Good stuff. Now, my uh, co-host has no idea why I I uh, played that clip. No, not yet. Normally, we we would do that prior to discussing a little bit of football, but that's not for football. See, I promised the audience way back Uh-oh. that we were going to do the true Hollywood story of the co-host. Oh, wow, okay. And today's the day. See, I didn't let him know. I just sprung it on him. This way, uh, this way, he has no time to prepare. <laughs> he just has to come, come with it. Folks, we're coming off the cuff right now. This is a complete surprise. Yep. So uh, I am going to be in the role of the interviewer, uh, interviewing the co-host uh, to tell a little bit of his story. Okay. Um, and what he brings, where he comes from, and what he and how. He arrives at where he is to bring to the table what he brings to the table. Okay. All right. So, so, and this is just to prove to any anybody and everybody listening that I really was not prepared. I got to ask the host, are we even discussing anger today? We will be discussing anger today, yes. <laughs> All right, good, because, uh, yes, he did spring it it's, on it's me. It's possible you might want to discuss it after we... Uh... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, perhaps we can touch on anger after this uh, surprise. But yeah, no, absolutely, he did not. Uh, he did not tell me this is not planned. So I was just waiting for the right time. I'm open. I suppose we got to get it done. So, uh, Mr. Morales, moving right into the interview, what? Uh, how did you get involved in the underworld? The underworld of the lichens, huh? Uh, so I guess we could start with, and I think I've mentioned this on the show before, but that I was a resident uh, in a program, a D program, when it was known as Daytop, mm-hmm. um, here in California, the adolescent facility in Redwood City. Um, I was... I, I entered the program when I was 17. It was November... Third, 
I believe it was November 3rd of 2001. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I was 17. It was my third program. I had gone to two programs prior. I will not mention nor slander these programs on the air, but needless to say, they did not have the intended impact <laughs> that they had hoped for in dealing with me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's actually kind of funny. I was going to an outpatient group. I might as well just throw this throw this out there. I was going to an outpatient group, and when I told the group that uh, the judge had told me that I was going to be going to Daytop when a bed opened, so this is why I actually went to these two programs first, because there was no bed open at the time. Mm-hmm. There was a waiting list. Uh, and when I told the outpatient group that the judge had determined I would be going to Daytop, um, I got some looks from other kids in the group who had either heard of people who had been there um, and kind of gave me some death stories like, oh, man, I heard they don't even allow you to high-five people over there like kids do when they see each other. Like, you got to give people hugs and <laughs> things of this nature. So there was a word on the street was Daytop was nothing easy. They were going to break you down, so to speak. Yeah. And so... Um, we didn't tolerate any nonsense. <laughs> So I said, there you have it. Well, great. So, yeah, I went to uh, the first program, I believe. I went in November. I spent 30 days at program number one, uh, and then I spent about two and a half weeks at program number two. And essentially, I was going to be at program number two until this bed opened. Would you mind telling the audience uh, what drugs of abuse you were uh, engaging in? Yeah, so uh, mainly marijuana would be the drug. That was. Did you say you were mainlining? <laughs> you, I might as well have been, yeah. As, as, as much as I was using it, I might as well have been. Okay. But yeah, marijuana was the primary drug of choice. Um, you know, I never really got into drinking, mm-hmm. which is um, funny. So I have a different kind of perspective when people ask us about drinking and recovery right. and things of that nature because uh, my mom was an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And she was a drug addict as well, but alcohol was her number one. Right, we're going to get to that. And uh, so alcohol was something for me that I never really got involved with. Okay. But marijuana would be the primary, kind of the primary drug of choice. Okay, there. so you eventually make it to Daytop. That's right. What was your first day like? Uh, the f- <laughs> Who picked you up? The first, I was dropped off by my PO. Okay. Um, and I believe the first person I met was paying Mm-hmm. Uh, she was, uh, you would know more than me, I believe she was the intake yes. coordinator at the time. Right. Um, so she did an intake assessment with me. Mind you, I'm trying to get real logical with the questions she's asking me and thinking, how can I answer these so as to make her believe that I will not work here? I will, mm-hmm. <laughs> I will not be a good fit. And uh, so trying to think two steps ahead, I thought I answered the questions perfectly to lead her to believe it wouldn't work out, mm-hmm. and at the end of the interview, she says, "Awesome, you'll be a you'll be, you'll be a perfect <laughs> you're fit. a perfect candidate." <laughs> and so I was taken up to the AO. Mm-hmm. Oh. We have, we have foolproof assessments, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. I was taken up to the uh, administrative office where I met the second staff I had ever met, which was Elizabeth, who mm-hmm. uh, uh, executive assistant. Mm-hmm. And they brought me a plate of lunch up there, and I guess I was just going to eat up there and sign some paperwork right. or do whatever um, until my I&I. So 
I don't know if you want me to, this is the first day still, delve into what the I and I was like. Well, we know it's the stands for initial interview. Uh-huh. So what, do you remember the staff person who facilitated? I do indeed. Who that was? Richard Castrillo. Okay. So I Richard was the staff, and then there were three clients. I can't remember any of the clients except for who my big brother was okay. at the time. Okay. So just for in, informational sake, anyone who doesn't know, the initial interview is just a process that we put put clients, prospective clients through to find out their history, their background, et cetera, and then we take that information and throw it right back in their face in order to obtain from them some sort of emotional investment yep. uh, towards them getting their life back in order. All right, yep. so you go, you survive the initial interview. Were you, were you thrown out or you, you eventually you, you did it in one shot? Yeah, I believe I did it in one shot. Okay. They had me sitting in a prospect chair right. before the interview down in the hallway. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was told, um, you're not allowed to look at anybody mm-hmm. until we call you in. So I can just remember seeing different shoes okay. that people were wearing. Uh, okay, nice pair of Adidas there. Because I'm literally looking at the floor because mm-hmm. they said, you're not allowed to look at anybody. If anyone looks at you or tries to talk to you, you ignore them if it's not a staff member. And then I was called in, and I believe they might have sent me out once, but okay. I believe I did it in my first shot. Okay. So you you come out of that, and your your daytop life starts. Yes. Okay. Now, if I'm not mistaken, at that time you had already finished high school. Correct. And if I'm not mistaken again, because you had a number of firsts. Yeah, you finished high school, so you were the first client we've ever had in the adolescent program who, upon entry, had already completed. Had already completed. So Correct. you didn't have to actually go to school. No, which kind of complicated your actual treatment. It did, yes, and caused us to have to get okay. very creative <laughs> with uh, your treatment. Yeah, which then involved. Uh, uh, how can I phrase this? Um, assigning you, let's use that word, to uh, the assigning you to two staff people. <laughs> yes, for, for whatever means they wanted to utilize you for. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that's the nicest way to put that's, it. That's that's entirely accurate. <laughs> One of them, Joe Williams. That's how I charge got to of know maintenance. Joe, the so late well. Joe Williams, and the other Anthony Espudo. Espudo. Yes. Uh, so what was that like? Because that's where you spent the majority of your, your treatment, my hands are in quotes, hanging with those guys right. and them guys giving you the business. Right. Uh, I got to say, and obviously I can only give my perception through my own point of view, my mm-hmm. own eyes, but I might have been the luckiest client in treatment to have been put in that position. Mm-hmm. Um, I can remember, <clears throat> I don't know if, if you recall this, um, the first month and a half, I think you guys were sending me to school anyway. Mm-hmm. You just have to be a part of the structure, uh, which was not so good for the teachers because I would go over to school and I would just sleep. Right. They'd give me assignments, do this, do that. Do, and uh, I think, and I should, I should state this for the record, that we had gotten better with clients who finished high school with what they could do in that school because they started to get them involved in junior college right. and other things of this exactly. nature. That wasn't going on when I was there. Right. 
So essentially, the teachers would say, if you don't complete this assignment or if you sleep, we're going to give you an F on it. I'm like, you can give me all the Fs you want. I've already graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's when you guys must have discussed it in staff meeting and, okay, we need to do something else with Mm -hmm. this kid. And like you said, um, I I was assigned to Joe Williams and and Tony, and um, I think it was – I really believe that that is where I got the majority of my treatment Mm -hmm. and really helped shape me into who I would later become in treatment. Mm -hmm. I would go to the food bank with them to help them with food bank Mm -hmm. um, orders that we were bringing back to the facility – if Joe needed me to help him on some sort of maintenance project, I would help him out with a maintenance project. Um, if he needed to pick up something for the facility, I would go in the van with him and we would go pick something up. Um, and there was just kind of a chemistry there, an interaction that they had with me mm-hmm. um, that really kind of flipped my mind state. You know, watching the two of them interact, which if anyone knew Tony and Joe and could ever see the two of them mm-hmm. interact, it was like a comedy show mm-hmm. right in front of you. They had such Laurel and Hardy. Laurel and Hardy. Mm-hmm. Um, but kind of as a as a seventeen year old, and I turned eighteen in treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, seeing these two adults who were both in recovery themselves, and you know had been affiliated with the program for a long time, but just having fun, mm-hmm. working and, and getting along, and being able to live their life without substances, and um, it was just it, it was awesome to see that kind of role model ship right in front of me day in and day out Mm -hmm. where I could say, wow, you know what I mean? Like it's possible to do something different. Um, and it was, it was also incredibly entertaining. I, (laughs) I have one vivid memory of they had bought screens that were rolled up Mm -hmm. (laughs) for the facility. Mm -hmm. And I was down in the basement where Joe's, uh, tool, place and office was i guess you could say right the maintenance office the maintenance office (laughs) (laughs) slash uh sleeping uh area right (laughs) so i thought i was real slick uh i would there was a chair set up by the washer and dryer Mm -hmm. and they had joe needed me to um all these rags that had been dried he wanted them folded and put in his office so i got a milk crate sat it on my lap took a pile of rags, put them next to me, folded the first three or four, then put one in my hand, and I'm going to take a nap now. And then if I hear them, there's stairs leading to the basement, by the mm-hmm. way, for those of you listening. I figured I'd hear them coming down the stairs, if need be, and wake up, and I got some rags. It looks like I'm folding rags. And I don't know if they if they saw me through a window and decided to creep down slowly, but I was rudely awoken uh tony's asking joe what the hell is this big dumb animal sleeping down here for and joe said can you believe this pass me one of those screens and so they were passing the screens back and forth uh whacking me about the legs if you will <laughs> and Lene jaimez uh who was and still is i believe the the director Chronicle of the program director, yeah. overall mm-hmm. uh <laughs> came walking down the the ao ramp which we could all see clearly, and they told me real quick to shut up, don't make a noise. And uh, when she had passed, uh, they said, you know, if you tell Lene about this, it's over for you, and this and that and the other. And um, and believe it or not, it was it was that it was that kind of interaction that mm-hmm. they had with me, and that kind of relationship and bond that um, 
I think really kind of put me over the top mm-hmm. and got me to think, you know what, I need to do this program correctly. Um, you know, and I and and it was that kind of uh interaction with them two that that got me laughing and thinking, you know what, you know, I you don't need anything that I was doing in my previous life to to live a good life and be happy and Now would you say prior to that um that realization from those experiences were there times uh of uh and you know we know our topic today is anger were there times of of anger and outbursts for you in your early days of treatment <laughs> yeah i would say i would say there definitely remember, was remember i don't ask a question i don't know the answer to so <laughs> <laughs> i would definitely um definitely say there was uh, I guess my angry, I had two kind of what you might consider to be the, the larger of the anger outbursts mm-hmm. in treatment. And, um, both times I ended up damaging the property. Um, one time I, I broke one of the fence planks in the backyard, mm-hmm. wooden fence plank. And the other time I put a large dent in one of the dryers, um, both times I had to hear it from Joe because mm-hmm. he he was the maintenance guy and mm-hmm. he he was a pretty big uh, proponent in getting me to think before I act because I had this connection with Joe, right? Mm-hmm. Like I looked up to him and I didn't want to let him down and Joe's telling me I've created all this extra work for mm-hmm. him now. And uh, But yeah, I would say um, anger was definitely the easiest emotion to tap into mm-hmm. when I was in, in treatment and... Um, I can remember those two times specifically where I can definitely recall now looking back at them that there was something deeper than anger, mm-hmm. but anger was what had presented itself right. at the moment. Um, can you share with our audience um, in terms of some personal uh, story that you know there's some uniqueness to your situation mm-hmm. involving your, your immediate family? Okay. If you can share that. Sure. So I, I'm not going to say it, but rather have you say it. Yeah, okay. So um, like I said a little bit earlier, my, my mother struggles with addiction herself. Mm-hmm. Um, she's an alcoholic as well as a drug addict. And uh, I never met my biological father. Mm-hmm. Nobody in my family knows who he is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, yeah, when I was um, two and a half or three I was living with my mom mm-hmm. at the time who was uh, in her addiction and I guess one of the neighbors <clears throat> excuse me one of her neighbors called the authorities mm-hmm. either because they believed something was up with her she didn't look right or they heard me crying or mm-hmm. something like this uh, and the authorities came in and I don't I vaguely remember a time when I was that small some police officers coming into the house mm-hmm. Uh, but long story short, they removed me uh-huh. from her custody. They said, you know, she was not fit to be a parent, and so I was going to be placed in the foster system. And uh, when that time was going to happen and there was a court hearing, my grandparents, my mom's parents, mm-hmm. showed up, and I was the their first grandson, their first grandchild. Mm-hmm. Um, and they said, you know, in no way is our first grandchild going to go into the foster system. We will take guardianship and become the legal guardians. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so as a result, yeah, when I was three, uh, moved in with my grandparents, and they were my guardians all the way up and through when I was they 18. They basically after. raised you. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So yeah, so and that gives people, I guess, a little context with the updates on Nana and things right. like that. 
So not only is she Nana, she's my mom. So right. she plays multiple roles right. in my life. So, right. so yeah, that was the family dynamic. Mom in addiction herself and, and never knew or met dad. And so grandma and grandpa became mom and dad. Okay. Would you say that that history played a role in your your gravitation at some point in your adolescence towards using drugs? Yeah, you know, I would say definitely, and and I can't really even to this day maybe pinpoint it, mm-hmm. but more so looking at it generally, mm-hmm. the dynamic between my mom and I, I definitely believe played a role in the behavior that I displayed when I became a teenager. Right. I can't say for sure that um, dad, not knowing dad, had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. Um, Grandpa did a pretty good role of doubling his right. dad, obviously. I think I can remember one time when I was maybe 9 or 10, and I wanted to play basketball, and I wanted him to come and play with me at the park, and he had said he was tired or something like that. And I think it was that was the only time in my life where I used that line that a kid might use, like, well, if you were my dad and you were younger, you wouldn't be tired. And so I'll go play by myself. And like 10 minutes later, he showed up. Mm-hmm. And he's not <laughs> – my grandfather has not an athletic bone in his body. <laughs> but him showing up did something for me. I never mentioned that again. Mm-hmm. So I don't think dad really had anything to do with it. Mm-hmm. But mom, seeing her going in and out of programs, you know, being in that kind of atmosphere mm-hmm. – um, she still had visitation rights on the weekends. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, without saying too much, she definitely put me in positions to be dishonest on her behalf um, with my grandparents because mm-hmm. obviously her visiting me was contingent upon her staying clean and doing certain things. And so ever since I was, you know, four or five years old, I can recall her trying to be. Uh, trying to be sneaky with, um, you know, certain behaviors or sneaking alcohol or something like that. And Mm -hmm. if I caught her, please, you know, please don't tell Nana and Papa. They won't let me see you. What's the relationship like today? Uh, It's poor, Mm -hmm. I would say. There's not... There's not a whole lot of communication. Mm -hmm. There's there's no really... No interaction. That has a lot to do with um, my little sister. So my mom had another child... Um, she, my little sister is 11 mm-hmm. now, I believe she's currently in the foster system. Mm-hmm. Um, my mom lost rights with her too, and again, due to her addiction and speaking of anger, that has brought some anger mm-hmm. <laughs> to my plate at this mm-hmm. point in my life. Um, and so, yeah, I guess the relationship probably with mom, I'd say there is no relationship. It's not really there. I used to talk on the phone. So she's currently still struggling with correct okay yeah correct she's in hawaii she lives in hawaii my little sister is in hawaii as well okay and which probably makes it more difficult especially on the little sister side to try and and reach out out because right yeah exactly six thousand miles away whatever it is all right so you you go through the program you end up graduating uh what makes you decide to want to work in the field and and help others and give back. Yeah, I can say I remember very vividly a moment um, when I was at the time, which was phase four, Mm -hmm. which is now known as phase five. And I was coming back 
fairly regularly to you know give back. Mm-hmm. Um, I would check in with some of the clients, and there was one client in particular who um, I don't know I connected with on some level. He was a very very difficult client. Um, he didn't want to be there. He was a kid from East Palo Alto. I actually to this day still remember his name. Mm-hmm. Um, and I remember having a conversation with him in the backyard of the facility. Uh, and after about 20 minutes, he broke down into tears Mm -hmm. and he thanked me and said, you know what? I've never had somebody really try and open my eyes or get me to look at a different way of living life. And he was really vulnerable in that Mm -hmm. moment. And he got, you know, was really thankful. And I was trying to encourage him to, you know what? That's awesome, man. And there's nothing that's going to stop you from succeeding and yada, yada. And we Mm -hmm. had a conversation. Mm Mm-hmm. And I can remember that very moment leaving the gate of the facility and instantly calling my dad, my mm-hmm. grandfather. Um, and and I told him on the phone, I said, you know, he has always talked to me about find your passion and that's mm-hmm. what you should do for a living. Mm-hmm. And it was in that moment that I, I called him and was leaving the property and told him, um, I think I found it, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he asked me what had happened, and I explained to him what I just explained, that I had this conversation and kind of had a breakthrough with someone and how good I felt that I could help somebody get to that space. Mm-hmm. And I said, this is, uh, I'm pretty sure this is what I want to do. This is it. This is going to be it. And so he said, great. He said, you know, you'll have to go to school and study psychology so you can get a degree to back you up. Mm-hmm. And um, it was around then when I began taking one or two classes at mm-hmm. the local junior college and began my path to studying psychology. And you are still currently? Different, yeah. yeah. So um, school to this point with where I work has culminated in uh, I'm a registered addiction specialist intern, Mm -hmm. um, which I believe they've combined with another school now. So now I'm considered a KDAC or a KD. Um, and so, yeah, my, my major is different now as far as a bachelor's degree is concerned, but I do have that certificate um, to do what I do here. Okay. And and I can attest, uh, you're now, uh, what, uh, a coming up on a 13-year veteran yeah. work, working? Yeah, basically. Uh-huh. Uh, so... You're uh you're an old uh you're an old hat now. <laughs> That's it, an old dog. That's right. Uh you've seen everything that needs to be seen. No one can put one over you. Um and that just comes from uh years of experience. So, um and I think all of the the, the clients who have um encountered you and I mean that in the positive sense, not the the TC sense, um uh-huh. will attest to uh your spirit. Um, and, and that you, you can tell when someone's heart is in what they're doing, and, and we know for a fact that the, the clients can see that in you. So good for us. Right, yeah. Good, good for, for us because, you know, like, like we talked about last week, you, sometimes you might get stuck with uh, a couple of... Uh, Tough ones? Yes. <laughs> Politely yeah. Yeah. speaking. That should not be uh, counseling uh, other people. Yes, so, right, right, right. All right. Good abbreviated version of the true Hollywood story of uh, is. Chris Morales, it's on the co-host, the table. <laughs> engineer, call screener, clip dropper. That's right. That's right. Good stuff. Pleasure to share. Yeah, pleasure to share with everybody. All right, we're gonna keep on going. We're gonna go. We're not even gonna take a break. We're gonna go right into our topic. Let's do it. Um, 
anger, the most verbalized feeling. Would you agree? I would have to say, uh, yeah. I'll throw an arbitrary number out there. Like 99% of the time a client's going through something and you ask them uh, what's going on or how you're feeling, I'm pissed off or I'm angry. Yes. And we know, and if you don't know, we're going to tell you today, uh, yes, anger is the most verbalized feeling. What do we mean, just in case you don't understand, but verbalized? Just as uh, Mr. Producer and co-host stated, that when we talk to people who are in the midst of an upset and ask them what what's going on and so on and so forth, and they will tell you that they're angry, they're pissed off, or they're mad, or whatever the case may be. And it's our job, especially as, as counselors, to really brush that aside. What do I mean when I say that? Before anyone gets their knickers in a twist. To not uh, not meet them directly at that anger and try and get beyond behind get, what, we that get, a little yeah, bit. We want to get behind it. Behind Doesn't, enemy lines. It so does not speak. mean that we're, we don't acknowledge the, that you're angry because, of course, we want to acknowledge that because anger is a real human emotion. Right. Every, everybody experiences it. But what we want to do um, is get behind it. Why do we want to get behind it? Well, we know that expressing anger, whether it be verbally or demonstrably in terms of your body language, is very easy. Oh, yeah. It comes easy for a lot of people to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but anger, and we talked about this when we did our show on the feelings. Right, right, right. right. Anger is, not a, is never the first feeling. No, we want to know. Totally we want to know is what happened before that, right? And it gets glossed over so quickly, instantaneously. You know, flick your finger that fast, and we want to slow it down. Yeah, and I think it's because anger requires no thought. Correct. And it doesn't really require you to feel. You can mm-hmm. just become a reactor, mm-hmm. just scream and yell, and there. You're not really thinking logically about okay, what's what is it that's really upsetting? Just you, releasing energy. You can, yeah, you can just turn off the brain right. and just go ballistic, and that's really easy, right. really easy to do. So we want to slow it down, backtrack a little bit. Let's go over some. You know what? What did you feel before that? Um, what transpired? Made a little. We don't want to spend. We don't want to spend too much time on the. The the incident that might have been the the you know the spark yeah um, because you can then get wrapped up in the details of the incident when what's really more important not that those things aren't important and those things should not be talked out yeah. it is important to talk those things out but we want to make sure that we get to after you explain what transpired what did you initially feel before the anger arise. Exactly. Okay. And that is very very difficult to get people to do. And and I could say a little trick that I've used mm-hmm. to help people get to this is sometimes it it would be hard for them or or I've encountered clients where it's hard for them to engage in going back to that moment. Mhm. 
and what did I really feel? Because like you stated, the anger comes on so quickly, mm-hmm. you almost don't have time to process what you may have felt before. Right. But as that anger subsides mm-hmm. and the client calms down, you can go back to that moment. Okay, what was the comment made to you? So thinking about it now, mm-hmm. if someone makes that comment to you, how would that make you feel? Mm-hmm. And they could identify something after the anger, which would then be, that's probably how you felt when that happened, but the anger took over, right. which was disrespected or uh, hurt it on hurt some my feelings level or whatever yeah. the case emba- may be. I felt embarrassed. Right. You know, any number of things that if you if if you experience that, you get angry. Right. Yep. You exactly. Um, and so we try and while simultaneously acknowledging that the anger is real, it's it's people get angry, and not to diminish that there's something wrong with you if you do get angry. It's in order to understand the full scope of what you are experiencing all the feelings that are being encountered during this process, Mm -hmm. not just the one that's the most visible, the most demonstrative, and the one if someone is looking from afar, they can say, oh, that guy's pissed off. That guy is angry. (laughs) Yeah. When when in fact, what's really going on is, no, that guy had his feelings hurt. Mm -hmm. That guy just felt disrespected. That guy's frustrated. That guy just got embarrassed. Mm-hmm. You know, that's what's really going on. Exactly. The anger is just the residue of what you're seeing. Right. So um, the other thing that we wanted to talk about was, which is extremely, I mean, I don't know, I don't even want to name a percentage, but how many people come into the treatment environment and proclaim themselves to have an anger problem? And... They proclaim it in a fashion, as in a manner that that is the reason why I am yeah. the way I am. Mm-hmm. I have an anger problem, so you got to excuse me. You got to pardon me for a minute. You got to, you know, give me a break because I got an anger problem. Well, unfortunately, that does not work here. <laughs> right. Um. Because the whole population, the human population, has, has an, an anger, anger problem. Has an anger problem. <laughs> exactly. Because anger, as I stated before, is a normal human emotion. We all experience anger. Mm-hmm. So what I used to do when I spent a lot of time on the floor, I'd, you know, someone would say, oh, I got, I got an anger problem. I would say, listen, I can solve your anger problem in 30 seconds or less. You want to try? And they would look at me very warily. <laughs> what kind of trick are you getting ready to try? What, mm-hmm. what is this guy trying to do here? Here comes the um, magic. Who is this guy? You know. <laughs> and um, I said, "Well, look, you know, what do you got to lose? I can, you know, I can help you out big time." So when they finally let it happen, I say, "Listen, you get angry? Yeah, I get angry too. It's a normal human emotion. If it's a normal human human emotion." It wouldn't make sense then that you specifically, just you, have an anger problem. Right. Would it? No. Now, is the problem that you experience that normal human emotion of anger, or is it what you do right. when you're angry? That's when usually I get the five seconds of silence, and you see the, the thinking the wheels, wheels turning. The wheels are turning, and then yeah. the, the realization comes in, it's yes. It's really what I do. 
said, so change it how you phrase it from now on. Instead of saying I have an anger problem, talk about, you know, I have a problem with how I act when I get angry. Yeah. Because there's nothing wrong with getting angry. Something pisses you off, it pisses you off. Yeah. It is what it is. But can we control what you do? Yeah. Moving forward, can you not throw a chair? No one throws chairs. I'm just making it up. Sure. Can you not grab someone and put them in a headlock? Can you not do something that's going to get you in a jackpot? Yeah, what I've told clients is after having a similar kind of conversation is to change your thinking that you have a anger problem to you have a coping problem. Mm-hmm. It's not the anger. It's how you choose to cope with it or deal with it, like you said. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is the issue. You can be angry, but there's plenty of productive ways to blow off steam, and there's not so productive ways. Which, out of that was born the anger management. Mm-hmm. Um, and tools. Yes. Mm-hmm. And, and and it became ingrained in, in, in our program, in, in, in the TC. I mean, this wasn't in the TC back in the day, anger management group. Right, no. Um <clears throat> It's a staple and, now. And, and yeah, it's a staple now because what it allows people to do is this is a an intellectual group mm-hmm. where we talk about ways of, like you said, coping, mm-hmm. different ways of behaving, different ways of dealing with the feeling of anger. And interestingly, how we have it set up here in our program, right after that, they go right into encounter group. That's right. Okay. Encounter group, for those who don't know, is a group where you can go in and let all of your feelings out. Let that steam off. The relief valve of the TC encounter group. By being in a a group where you can learn how to cope and manage and deal, you then can utilize that encounter group more effectively. Right. You know what I'm saying? You can still let the energy out let the steam off, the pre- pressure relief valve up, okay? Mm-hmm. But now my my mind comes into play in terms of using my coping skills that I just learned right. 30 minutes ago in my anger management class. Exactly, and it, and it kind of taps into or presents an opportunity similar to what I was just talking about if I'm interacting with a client who's angry and we let some of that steam out and then we can relive the situation and find out what the real feeling was. Right. Where the encounter group not the purpose to get to that real feeling but we're letting the steam off and then after that group after everything is out mm-hmm. you can go talk with that person yeah. who you believe made you angry now that the steam is out say ah you know what it's actually what happened was you embarrassed me or you hurt my feelings or some of the things you had mentioned mm-hmm. then we can get to the real and mm-hmm. they're starting like you said to use those tools then on how to cope with the embarrassment or the things that were came before the anger and it all works together Really. So some of the things that we've done and we've tried is, you know, actually not even paying attention to quote unquote the anger. Meaning, you know, someone says I'm angry, we don't even we don't even, you know, pay attention. You gotta come you gotta tell us some other feelings. Right. The anger you know, the anger has become too easy. Okay. Now, before current time, you know, the, the current age we're in Let's okay. say 2005 to current, so we're in this new 10-year window, right? Mm-hmm. Prior to that, I personally would always use this analogy and example. I wouldn't use it now because now I would make it unisex, but before I'd use it as a male. You know, anger was, you know, had a little macho quality to it. 
Yeah, you know, sure, it had, of course. You know, a lot of ego behind it. You know, what I mean, a lot of pride behind it. And so there was some there was something to you know displaying the anger more than just uh, being angry. You know, it had messages behind it. There was you know the the hidden agenda of intimidation. Don't mess with me because this is what you know the you know the wrath of Khan is coming down upon you. You know what I mean? And so we kind of got hip to that, realizing how people would use their quote unquote anger to try and intimidate others, facilitate others in, in whatever way they wanted to, manipulate others in situations. And so we had to kind of yank that away. First of all, call them out, pull their covers on that, mm-hmm. let them know that we knew what they were doing, mm-hmm. okay? And then take that power away from them. Happens in the animal kingdom. There you go. With the peacock spreading great, his great, feathers. Great or, analogy. Or great the analogy. cat puffing out his fur. It's mm-hmm. okay. Yeah, we get you're tough, and that's mm-hmm. that's that's what you're showing right now. It's a dance. It's a display. Like right. you said, a lot of ego driven kind of thing. And yeah. So um, yeah, that definitely plays a big a big. You're sending a message. Right. But the reason why I said uh, I wouldn't use that same analogy just for men now. Because this happened after after we had that experience with the first fight ever. The, the Half Moon Bay the campground. First, yeah, the first fight ever in, at the time, Daytop, California's history, uh, happened at the, when, when we, were they going, like, a, was it overnight camping? Just yeah, one night? Yeah, or was it I a day trip? like a weekend. It was like a two weekend, nights. two nights, okay. And uh, we, had a, we, had a, we had a brawl. And uh, it was started by the girls. That's right. Um, and when I say ball, I mean in real throw down. It was a royal know, rumble. Uh, there was furniture moving. Yeah, there was furniture. <laughs> there was a furniture moving up in the place, and it was the girls that were doing it. Mm-hmm. Okay. And by the way, don't think we didn't make fun of the boys when this was when 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 the dust had settled and everything was dealt with. We got the boys in the room and they made fun of them. Because prior to all of that, all of the wolf tickets, all of the threats, all of the, you know, the big, bad, you know, macho images were coming from the guys. Right, exactly. When it came time, though, to throw down, and when the Duke started flying and the fisticuffs started happening, okay, (laughs) it was just the girls. The girls got down. And, by the way, it wasn't girls fighting girls. No, they were after They were going after the guys. Yeah. Throwing haymakers. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So, it was at that point we realized as staff mentally that from our experience, our program experience, the guys will talk a lot, talk a lot of stuff, but it was the girls, the women, that you got to watch because they're the ones who will not talk, start swinging. Yep. And even after talking to multiple POs and finding out, hey, you know, and then telling us, yeah, in the halls, it's the girls who do all the fighting. Fight. Mm-hmm. The guys do a lot of talking, a lot of yapping, but it's the girls, no yapping, you know, Earrings are coming off, you know, bright shoes are coming off, right. and they're getting ready to throw Hair's down. getting put up into yeah, a bun. Yeah, throwing the hairs up, you know, and all that stuff. So That's right. That's true. We really had to rethink our, uh, would you say, our stereotypes, so to speak. Yeah, our mindset. Because and... it, was, it, was, it was the guys 
who uh, spent most of the time, you know, doing a lot of the yapping and, and, and making the threats, not the girls. Right. It just came out of nowhere. So today, in today's treatment environment, we have to equally uh, deal with anger mm-hmm. from males and females. That's correct. Okay. Um, and the females, just as much as the males, demonstrate it, verbalize it. Mm-hmm. Um, so in the treatment setting, it's very important to do two things, which we do do. One is allow a forum where that energy can be released. Right. And then two, allow a forum where the in the intellectual aspect of the the feelings can be talked about. Right. And where we can find out and teach them about speaking to the feelings that occur before that. Um, that's where the true processing of the feelings come into play. Mm-hmm. Which unwritten philosophy does that always call into quest call into the forefront? My favorite to be aware is to be alive. Because once you become aware of what makes me tick, tick, what makes me get angry, you know, do I get angry when I get frustrated? Do I get angry when I feel embarrassed? Do I get angry when I'm when I when I'm rejected or feel rejected? Do I get angry if I uh, you know I feel resentful? You know, whatever it is, each individual is unique and right. different. But you're responsible for finding that out, so that as you stated you can develop coping mechanisms. Because we certainly don't want, ultimately our goal is we do not want someone to, because of their inability to deal with that secondary feeling, Mm -hmm. okay, of anger, ending up back in jail, violated by their PO because they threw a chair, because they caused a physical altercation. Mm -hmm. Or they made, you know, just a life-altering decision that caused them to get back in a jackpot. Because, as you said, they allowed it to get to anger instead of the anxiety or being overwhelmed or whatever you were really going through. Yeah, not not recognizing that this is how I'm feeling, Mm -hmm. even even if it does get to anger, but still being aware of why I'm feeling this way. Right. And it's just not this, you know, just being in this anger vacuum, so to speak. Right. So it is definitely a teaching a teaching process and a consistent teaching process because you deal, you're talking about feelings, mm-hmm. and of course we set the environment up yep. to have feelings uh, experienced. Let's say yes, <laughs> and, exactly. And exposed, so people get so clients get the opportunity to consistently practice dealing with them again and again and again. I wonder do they would they would they consider that torture now? That, that we set the environment up to to actually create these feelings. Uh, I would say maybe in ten years. Ten years, they say, oh, no, that's not good. You can't do that anymore." Oh. Yeah, borderline. No, I, maybe if we didn't give them a forum to then outlet it. Yes. Yeah. Yes, I agree. I mean, I do remember uh, encounter groups, and I remember um, e- e- for those who don't know the TC, there's always a couple in the group who people do not want to be encountered by because mm-hmm. they will let it fly. Mm-hmm. Uh, for the adolescent program, I was one of those people, mm-hmm. and I can recall a couple times 
walking to group. Literally, they call everybody down to group. Mm-hmm. And you're supposed to go down a group on what we used to call a monad. You're just not talking to anybody. Mm-hmm. You're going to walk to your seats. And people would come up to me on the way to group before we'd reach the room. Uh, if I did anything to you this past week to upset you, I apologize. <laughs> Preemptively trying to uh, get on my good side because they knew the slip was dropped and the heat was coming. And I always used to think it was so funny in my head. I wouldn't say a word to them, and then they'd get theirs in encounter group. But a great outlet, like you said, a great tool that we offer. Do we do we have a statue of limitation on uh, intimidation? <laughs> yeah, we'll we'll set it at uh, what's the typical seven years? We'll set it at seven years. So. I yeah, I agree. Um, so, but ultimately, there's no encounter group out in the real world, mm-hmm. and we're trying to teach. The awareness of trying to teach the individual the, to be aware of the different things that would bring that feeling to the forefront. Yeah. And along with, again, the purpose of having the anger management classes ingrained in our program where they can learn the coping mechanisms, learning to identify, you know, what the things are that get them to that flashpoint because would you agree that there are two different levels? You have the individual that, you know, gets their things that get them angry. Mm-hmm. Okay. But it's a controllable anger. Yeah. yeah. And then there's the others where edge of the seat, borderline waiting for once the wick hits the explosive exactly the bomb goes off right yeah. um i and, agree with that and, and you know those are the ones you have to work with more consistently cuz and and you know obviously we get into there might be issues that are behind that level of anger agree um but the methodology methodology doesn't change I agree. In terms of how we we attack it. Mm -hmm. Now, we're saying all that not to say that we have a program where we don't want people to get angry. Anti-anger? Yeah, we're we're not an anti-anger program. Of course not. Um, Because we get equally peeved when we don't see people expressing anger. Right. We want all the, the... the whole the whole gamut gamut of the emotions to have the floor absolutely but what we're saying today is we don't want the anger to dominate and rule which right. it sometimes does right um we're also saying today that we don't want our clients to um settle into the thinking that well, I have an anger problem, and so this is the this is the reasoning behind whatever else is going on in my life. Right. And so we yank that out of their brain very Real quickly. quickly. Yeah. Um, we want them to be able to move past it and understand there's an intellectual aspect mm-hmm. and there's an emotional aspect, and become excellent at understanding just themselves, not anybody else, just themselves. That's all we ask for. Mm -hmm. 
I don't want you to understand Chris. I don't want you to understand John or Sally. Just understand yourself. Right. So what are you going to do? You're driving down the highway. The guy cuts you off. What are you going to do? Is road rage going to rule the day? Or is the just as instantaneous as you used to get to anger and do something without thinking that you've now gotten to the point where you can slow the roll down a little bit, yep. slow the process down, see what has occurred, think, do a very quick introspection of what you're going through, mm-hmm. <laughs> okay? Yeah. And then as a result, the result being I can now control what my reactions are going to be, how I'm going to respond. If we see that out of a client, then we've achieved our goal. I would agree. We've achieved our goal. I'd agree. Absolutely. And I'd piggyback on uh, the bit about us not being an anti-anger program and wanting to see the whole gamut. And I would argue, as from a counselor's perspective, it's actually easier to work with the client whose anger is out there for all to see yeah. versus the one who is trying to present monotone and got it all together throughout their treatment and you never get to see that because that I've always told other counselors who, who I've helped train or whatever mm. the case may be that it's very hard to treat what you can't see. Yes. If you can see it, you can game plan. Okay. How can I approach this? If mm. you can't, uh, it's like shooting darts in the dark. Well, that speaks to, uh, I mean, we, we always have said the, the, the client that eventually where their whole being, B-E-I-N-G, mm-hmm. okay, is out there to see, um, gives you something to work with. If you have to, you know, be looking and, you know, and, and digging, be digging and, and, you know, trying to drag, you know, and wondering, is that, the, you know, is that the real them or what have you? And then we have to then start doing things like, uh, you know, you know, pulling passes and, and making up fake injustices <laughs> just to see how they're going to respond yeah, react, and see if we can yeah. get some reaction out of them. And, you know, and we eventually do do succeed mm-hmm. and, and see that, you know, wow, they are human. They do get angry. Mm-hmm. And then it gives us something to talk about. Wow, exactly. we haven't seen you express any kind of, you know, real significant emotion in six months. But as soon as we, you know, denied your past, Wow. Look what happened. Yeah. So I think for the females we used to call those sweet poly purebreds. Okay. This is after the this is from the <laughs> underdog cartoon. Okay. It might, it might be uh you know, before your time, underdog. Um I vaguely remember the underdog. Yeah. And then the other one for the male, uh used to be called Dickie Daytop. I remember. We that. haven't come up with one for OCG yet, but uh, and so these are one. You know, you don't. You know, they're doing their thing. They're you know they're kind of cruising through. They're 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 not really violating any rules or anything like that. Um, and they and you know they're just cruising. So what do you you know they're not giving you anything to to to, to hang on to, mm-hmm. to to work with. So you're playing a waiting game. And then it gets to a point where you can't wait anymore because time is, you know, kind of going by. And right. now you have to to artificially manufacture 
things in the environment to see how they're going to respond and react. Right. So anger, the most verbalized feeling, and our goal is to make that not so. Exactly. All right. I think that's well done, well wrapped up. Okay. Let's uh, take a break and then come back on the other side with our recovery support. We will do that indeed. Thank you, guys. We do see uh, we've got some callers on hold, and we will get to you momentarily.
Roach on Recovery is a program of OCG Radio. It deals with many topics related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, and recovery. Our recovery support time is a show segment where you can receive support from our host for any questions or issues you wish to present related to substance abuse, substance abuse treatment, or recovery. You can reach our host live by calling 646-564-9909. That's 646-564-9909. Or you can send your questions via email at any time to ocgworkca at gmail.com. That's ocgworkca at gmail.com. And our host will respond to your questions on the air. Roach on Recovery. Recovery support time. A time for us to help you. Okay, welcome back to Roadshow. That's a good one. Yes, indeed. And and there's a reason why he actually did that clip, because we are going to start our recovery support time with an X-File question. We didn't get to any X-File questions last week, and I I wanted to make sure we got to at least one today. So... um, That makes up for the week when you weren't here and I couldn't do it. Yes, indeed. All right, this one actually has to do with our topic. Benzin from Redwood City. How can you control your anger when someone pushes your buttons? So, this one ties into the puppet theory, which I've spoken about before on our show. Ultimately, you are responsible for controlling, and again, not the anger. It's okay to feel and experience anger. It's what what society 
what the people around you are concerned about and want to feel secure about is what you do when you're in that state of being angry. And if another person is allowed to, as he wrote it, using his words, control him, then that's a problem. Because you're going to, if you if you have intra or interpersonal relationships with people, you're going to experience anger in the course of those relationships over time. And so it's not, you know, how can I not experience anger? It's what are you doing if you get angry? It has nothing to do with the other person. So his question when he says, when someone pushes my buttons, no one should be able to push your buttons. See, you getting angry doesn't mean someone's pushing your buttons. Because to express or, or, or encounter a human emotion is normal. So if someone, whatever the issue is or the circumstance is that causes you to experience that doesn't in and of itself mean that someone is pushing your buttons. It just means this is what you're experiencing. So you have to claim ownership for your own feelings. You can't say someone else is responsible. No, these are my feelings. I'm the one that's feeling them. The question is, what am I going to do behind those feelings? That's where it gets dicey. And so when he says, how can I control my anger? We want you to just control your behavior. That's what we want you to control, your behavior, what you do when you get angry. It's okay for you to get angry. And if you believe that someone is trying to purposely get you to that state for out of their share enjoyment, you have to recognize that to be aware as to be alive and pull that power back and not allow them to have those puppet strings. You have to pull that power back. You can't allow someone else to have that power. You have to pull it back. You have to actually do something. It's not the other person. It's what you're doing or what you're allowing, the effect you're allowing them to have. We often like to put it off on somebody else. It's not It's not the other person. Regardless of what the circumstance, regardless of what the situation is. I would have to agree. Okay. Let's see. Let's go to Jimmy. Hello. San Jose. Jimmy, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hi, My Jimmy. Can you speak up? Can you speak up a yes, little louder, please? Yes. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Okay. My question is, why is it that I am consumed by my emotions in my treatment? When you say consumed, what do you mean? What do you mean specifically? I, I, I feel overwhelmed by sadness or sometimes anger. Um 
just a lot of resentment, and I just can't seem to control it. And I, I and yeah, that's my question. I mean, why? What reasons would I have for that? Jimmy, can I ask you what your drug of choice is? My drug of choice is marijuana. So I'll just throw this out there, and then maybe the host can add on. Uh, when you use marijuana chronically, day in and day out, you deny yourself the ability to really get in touch with or feel anything on more than a surface level. So you kind of exist devoid of feeling, so to speak. And I'm going to assume that while using marijuana, like you said, as your drug of choice and now being in treatment where you're not using marijuana, uh, you're going to be experiencing a plethora of feelings that have been existent in your life for many years that you are now actually giving yourself the chance to feel and deal with. Does that make uh, does that make sense to you, Jimmy? Yes, that does make sense. So, Just, it, uh, so it it's kind of what makes treatment challenging, um, and especially, I guess, in this in your situation for a chronic marijuana user, uh, because you are going to be, uh, in essence, overwhelmed by the amount of things that you're going to be feeling, feelings that you have no idea where they're coming from. Uh, because instead of the natural progression of dealing with feelings and coping with things as they come up and moving beyond them, um, you've not coped with too much to this point. And so now, instead of having one thing on your plate and dealing with one thing at a time as it crosses your plate, you are now dealing with things that have accumulated over several years in a finite amount of time which can be very challenging and doesn't surprise me at all to hear that marijuana is your drug of choice and this is what you're experiencing with emotions and feelings because, quite honestly, Jimmy, let me ask you, and maybe this will be referenced for anyone listening, have you ever seen The Matrix? The yes, movie The Matrix. Yes, I have. So, so there's a scene in the first movie when Neo is found and is brought onto the ship by Morpheus, and without getting into too many details, when he is unplugged, and he's a human now, and he asks Morpheus why his eyes hurt, and Morpheus responds, because it's the first time you've actually used them, this is kind of what's going on with you and your feelings. Why are there so many? Because this is the first time in a long time you've actually even given yourself the opportunity to feel. Wow, Okay. That's a that's a nice insight. <laughs> um, the only thing I never, the only thing I would add, Jimmy, is to make sure that not now that now that you're feeling and experiencing them, that you have to really spend a lot of time talking about what you're feeling and experiencing. Yeah, I have a problem with that as well. It's like uh, it goes hand in hand. Yeah, especially speaking in groups, I have this like a fear of speaking out for some reason. Um, you have to adopt, or is it adapt, the F-it attitude towards that fear. Mm. The same the same attitude you had when you were out there using and you just said F-it and did whatever it is that you were doing, you have to adapt right. that same attitude and fight through it. I see. Okay. 
All right. All right. That makes that makes a lot of sense. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right, Jimmy. Thank you very much for calling. Hey, guys. Okay, have All a right, good bye-bye. one. Bye. You too. Bye. All right, let's go to, is it Greg from San Mateo? Yes, indeed. Yes. Hi, Greg. Well, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Um, I, I have a question. Um, I'm, a, I'm a recovering alcoholic, and I would like to know if it is possible for a, for a recovering alcoholic to possibly one day um, become a social drinker. Uh, well, Greg, uh, I, the short answer, in my humble opinion, would be no, uh, because alcohol is your drug of choice. Now, the the idea of people in recovery in some form or fashion who may have used other drugs one day becoming a social drinker is on the table for obvious reasons, because it's legal and it's we're surrounded by it, and many people we come in contact with can drink socially, but... Um, the, the idea that you're an alcoholic making alcohol your drug of choice and then asking if you can just do that every once in a while is uh, not the best idea, in, in my opinion. Probably not achievable, as it wouldn't be achievable for somebody who used marijuana as their primary drug of choice to just smoke on the weekends. Uh, probably wouldn't work out so well. Okay. Um, yeah, because you know, I, I guess one of these sayings in uh, AA would be, "One is too many, and thousands not enough." Um, but I, I, I didn't know. I don't know the answer to the question I had asked. Had asked, so I thought I would ask somebody who might know. Okay. Well, thank you for your time. Absolutely. Thank you for calling in. Thank you. Bye bye. Bye bye. Interesting that that was a question because my next question up from the X Files. Added on the X Files. Uh, he 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 actually wrote in this question, but I'm going to read it to you in a different way that he phrased it. Okay. Um, or it might be similar, but he said, "Is it possible to become a social drinker in the future after recovery?" So in his written question, he didn't add. There's no mention of being an alcoholic. Being an alcoholic. Which, when we were looking at this question, we said, wow, this is a great question because it has a lot of controversy behind right. it in the recovery field. Um, but if what he actually meant was, I'm an alcoholic, is it possible for me to have a, be a social drink in the future? Well, that's a simple answer. No. But let's answer the question as it's written. Yeah. Okay. And that's a whole different ball of wax. Yeah. And and that comes up a lot and that stirs up a lot of controversy because, you know, you got on the ex- one extreme side it's, you know, nothing, zero zilch, you know, abstinence from everything. Exactly. And then you have, you know, the other extreme. Um uh and you I think you made the point very eloquently about, you know, there are people who for example, who smoke marijuana. And right. that's a drug of choice. Had no issues with alcohol at all, zero, and you know have gone through recovery, no longer smoke marijuana, moved on with their life, et cetera. And the question becomes, you know, can they be a social drinker, or I like to say, like an event right. drinker? Sure. Um, don't even drink on the weekends. They might just drink at, at New Year's or at a wedding or something. Mm-hmm. Other than that, they don't drink. Um, and it comes down to a personal decision. Right. Ultimately. Um, because it is legal, um, is it, it is 
an accepted thing in society, um, in in appropriate moderation, we should say. Mm-hmm. Um, so, to me, any anyone who's in the industry that would say, unless you're an alcoholic, um, and or had a history of 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 drinking, um, in addition to using other drugs, that you could not be a social drinker or an event drinker. Um, I don't think that would be the case. I, I'm more on the side of, of the reality is that there are people out there who can drink um, and it not be an issue for them, even if they are in recovery from other substances. It's just my opinion. Yeah, I think we're in the same boat with that. Okay. You might get mean mail. <laughs> <laughs> Some thumbs down on the Facebook uh, radio page. <laughs> uh, let's see. Let's just talk to Jesus calling from San Bruno. Jesus, welcome to the show. Uh, thank you, sir. Uh, I have a question. Uh, my question is, uh, I got my recovery somewhere else before coming to to uh, a re- the, the recovery program where I'm at. Uh, how important is that to keep... Uh, like to keep uh, going in, uh, how to say, support group. I mean, I want to continue uh, with that support group because I felt warmth and I got me, like I said, I re- got my recovery there. Uh, and I don't have that where I'm at, at the recovery program. I don't have the warmth and that, uh, that, that closeness that I had that I, with the other uh, group that I recovered with. How important is that for me, if, if, for my sobriety, in your opinion? I- I think it's very important. Wherever, wherever you feel, as you, the terms you use, that warmth, that welcoming, um, et cetera, that's where you should be. Okay. Uh, can I ask one more question? Sure. How can I go about to uh, ask the, the staff where I'm at, the recovery uh, the, in the recovery program, for them to l- allow me to go see that 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 other group uh maybe once once uh once every two weeks I think that's something for you to do once you're finished with the, your program wherever you're at once you're finished doing that and you want to uh stay connected to that other uh support group that you were in that's what you should do. Or if you oh. you know if you're if you're in residential and you get an opportunity to go on weekend passes and things of that nature, and you want to go to a to that support group over the weekend or what have you, that's what you should do. But once you leave the program, and, and that's the group you want to attend, that's what you should do. Okay, thank I thank you very much for your for your uh, your uh, for your advice. You're very welcome. Thank you. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. I was wondering where he was going with that one. But uh, there's no, uh, you know, to me, there's no hard, fast rules uh, in terms of, you know, you go through one program with one organization and, uh you know, you're now you're done with that program. Let's say it's a residential program, and you know you've had experience in terms of going to a support group somewhere else, which you know you like. You like the people, you like the environment, etc. 
Um, trust me, there's people going around, you know, trying to find support groups, you know, you know, of the, you know, especially of the twelve-step variety, where the culture, you know, jives with them. You know, and it's a struggle sometimes. So if you find one that really fits with what you know you like, that's what you should do. That's where you should go. I well, agree with that too, but I and I would specify to be honest with yourself mm-hmm. and tread carefully in that because it's very easy for us to feel comfortable in a place where we feel this they, is they allow easy stuff to happen or the get over. <laughs> Uh, as opposed to the challenge, yeah. but just as long as you're being genuine with yourself, then yeah. I, I completely agree. Yeah. Can't fool yourself. Ready for this one? Bring it. Do you think a person can stop drinking cold turkey with the right incentive? This is from Lillian Concord. Huh. Uh, I'll, I have a, I'll let you answer, then I have a, I'll have a separate answer. I would say yes. Uh, the key to that being with the right incentive. And I will, being that you sprung the E! Hollywood True Story segment on me today, I can add a quick little uh, something that has been witnessed by my own family. Go right ahead. This was not drinking. This was smoking. Who Some say cigarettes are more addictive than anything else you can find. When I was born... My mother and Nana both told my grandfather, who was a pack-a-day smoker Mm -hmm. at the time and had been for 25 years, we will not allow you to hold the baby or get anywhere near him if you continue to smoke. And it was the day that I was born that he quit smoking cold turkey, never smoked a cigarette again. That was the incentive for him anyway. Wonderful story, very touching. Mm -hmm. But she's asking about drinking. And stopping cold turkey with the right incentive. So, as he stated in his response, depend on the it depends on the incentive. Well, my answer is a little bit different, so we're probably in 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 a, in a little disagreement. Whether or not a person can stop drinking cold turkey to me is irrelevant. I think the better question is should they. Stop drinking cold turkey, and the answer is yes. Only if you're going into a medically supervised detox. I was screening a call on the other line. Did you just disagree with me? I disagreed a little bit with what you said. Ah, shut up! Because <laughs> I think you didn't have an opportunity to complete your answer. So, okay. I, and so the question, which was, do you think a person can stop drinking cold turkey with the right incentive? Well. Right, right. I think, yeah, they can. The question is, to medical, me is, is you, you should wanna... they? And I don't think they should unless they're having a medical detox to go along with it. Right, yeah. The the medical part plays heavy. Yeah. Plays heavy. And, of course, there can be many right incentives that can cause that. Right. Doctor can walk in and say, look, your liver is shot. You don't stop drinking right now. you got three months. Yep. You stop right now, we might be able to stretch you out a little bit. Your choice. Which way you want to go. Yeah, so that's an example of of a possible incentive. That doesn't always work for some people, by the way. Even that scenario. Oh yeah, that's just from. Oh, there are, there are incentives that you might think could be the most powerful incentive someone could get in their life, mm-hmm. and it's still it's still not do the trick. So, 
All right, let's go to Mike from Santa Cruz. Mike. Yes, if I uh, may, Mike, home of the D-League Santa Cruz Warrior champions as well. <laughs> Welcome, Mike. Yeah, go champions. Yeah, uh, do you have right. any advice for uh, stress management? Stress management, uh, yeah, I would say, I mean, there are plenty of coping tools with which to deal with stress. Uh, you have to find, obviously, a coping tool that works for you because different tools work for different folks. Some people, music, writing, drawing, playing sports, lifting weights, chatting with their peers, talking. Um, walking. Walking. So, yeah, physical exercise. I know that in some places, uh, residential programs, they offer groups that will give you tools and you can begin to explore a little bit with what works for you. So I don't think there's a, a set answer or a straight answer across the board, but I think if you find what you're interested in or what works for you, your hobbies, things of that nature, you might in those types of things or in exploring that figure out what works well for you. Oh, okay. Thank you. Watching your Santa Cruz Warriors win the D-League championship might help, you know? <laughs> right on. <laughs> Thanks for Thank the call, Mike. Much. All right, bye-bye. Right, I think it's entirely inappropriate <laughs> that during the course of recovery support time that you uh, bring up the Warriors. How about that? The the D-League champs and the NBA champs. That, that's great right there. It's entirely inappropriate. <laughs> uh, Todd from Morgan Hill. A great question. All right. Starting to sound like John Gruden. How does an addict deal with his or her addiction when he or she takes narcotics? I will presume he means like narcotic pain medication. Prescription. Yeah. Okay. Prescri yeah, prescribed by a medical professional. Well, we have touched on this. We actually had a caller, I want to say back in January, Henry mm -hmm. was a regular caller of ours who uh, was going through some anxiety in anticipation of an upcoming surgery mm -hmm. with which he knew post-surgery he was going to be prescribed narcotics. Mm -hmm. And that made him very nervous because he wasn't sure how he could handle that, if he'd be able to handle that. And he had a previous history of going through a surgery, being prescribed right. narcotics, and that leading him down the, yeah, a bad path. path. Exactly. Right, and so um, it, it's natural to, I guess, be um, a little nervous about that or approach that situation with a little trepidation. However, the answer is you certainly can as long as you are not abusing the prescription and you're taking it as prescribed. Now, this um, ties directly into a comment I was making earlier about something else. You have to be honest with yourself. You have to be genuine with yourself. If you're taking it as prescribed and the script runs out and you feel like you're doing okay and you could maybe move to something over the counter, but you go back to the doctor stating there's still some pain to get another prescription, granted you're not taking it other than as prescribed, but you're elongating the, the prescription, you have to be honest with yourself and genuine with yourself as to whether or not you you truly still need that heavy narcotic medication. But in recovery, you certainly can, and, and and many people need to when they're in positions where 
post-surgery or something traumatic happens, you just have to be honest with yourself and, and you can't abuse it. And I have to give the uh, EJ, Eddie Hill, Eddie Hill answer to this, um, which is you have to develop the ability to take medication responsibly. That's the bottom line. And he was speaking to uh, us, the clients, all 250 of us, knowing that in that room there were many people dealing with illness, chronic pain, I mean, everything from A to Z, um, that were at some point or another going to be taking medication to help them deal with those things. And so his point was, I don't care what you use. If it comes down to that this is something that is going to be prescribed and this is, you know, the, you know, this is it, you know, this is what we got to do, you got to be responsible. And as you eloquently stated again, you got to be honest with yourself. Absolutely. Continuing along, it's been a while since we got a chance to dig, dig, dig deep into our uh, X-Files here. They've, they've been piling up. All right, we like that. Uh, Thomas wants to know, how long does it take a person to detox from opiates? Mm, i say about a week. Week, 10 days. By that time, usually the physical side effects have worn off. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you Before should. I go to screen these calls, I can just throw in my sure. go ahead. Um, my two cents, if you will. It also depends on the severity of the addiction. Uh, yeah, the addiction, the quantity of opiates that that person was using, uh, and then also whether or not you believe in methadone as an appropriate um, detox over a long period of time, or you think that's a big uh, money-making a Ponzi scheme, if you will. Uh, but there are 28-day hey, detoxes. Hey, don't start no controversy on this show now. <laughs> there are 28-day detoxes at methadone clinics for people who are severe opiate addicts. Mm-hmm. They just taper them down until because kind of like alcohol, w- withdrawing from opiates can be lethal. And it can be very, very um, scary to deal with in a dangerous situation if not dealt with appropriately. But I kind of agree with you for... For the majority of people who were using heroin or whatever, after about a week to 10 days, the physical kind of urge or craving or need to get it in has subsided and it becomes psychological after yes. that point. Yep. Let's see. What else do we have here? Oh, old reliable. Is it okay to have a relationship while in treatment? This is from Mary. I do not know, since she did not put it in context, if she means with someone outside of the treatment program or someone within. Well, we know within is inappropriate. Outside, it depends on where you are at personally in your treatment progress. There's a time and a place, and there's a time for all the focus, 100% of the focus to be on you, and then there's a time when you know, it might be appropriate to, you know, stick a, stick a toe in and entertain uh, a relationship. But that all has to be flushed out based on uh, where you feel you're at in your recovery process before you bring another person into the fold. Because of, as I've stated many times, once you bring another person 
into the arena. The focus comes off of you. It goes on to them. And so you should be ready and at a stage where you can withstand that. But we need to be selfish first. Take care of ourselves. Get ourselves healthy, mind, body, and spirit. Uh, let's see. Clark from Metropolis, Minnesota. What's the trick to staying in recovery during a crisis? The Twin Cities. That's a good one. Uh, It should be noted and stated that virtually anyone who's living in recovery who has engaged in recovery at a young age or younger age, I guess even an older age, Mm -hmm. will experience a crisis at some point. Mm -hmm. Um, And these are moments, obviously, that you need to be incredibly strong and confident in in your recovery. Uh, To me, it just takes... There's a mental space that one engages in at some point in their recovery where they, if if you want to call it coming to terms with the idea that using is just not an option for you anymore or it's not something you care to do, then it really doesn't matter how deep the crisis is that will present itself because you're already in a different kind of mind state or a different kind of mentality where the idea of using because I'm going through whatever it is I'm going through is not going to be an option. There might be many options on the table, some not so healthy, some healthier than others, but Mm -hmm. using will not come into the picture because you've made a decision that that's just not something that you're going to do. And so that comes with time and, uh, you know, time in recovery and being comfortable with the idea that you've made a decision that this is not going to be a part of your life anymore, in, in my opinion, again. And the only thing I was going to say was that there there's, there really isn't any trick. It's everything that you just stated. All right, let's go to Daisy from San Jose. Daisy, welcome. Um, okay, my question is, how many um, women remain sober after the first year? How many women? Yeah. Well, Remain I don't, I don't, sober after the first year. I don't know if anyone tracks how, how many people stay sober by by gender. I don't know if anyone tracks that specifically by gender, but what we do know is the longer a person stays involved in the treatment process and successfully completes the treatment process their rate of staying sober five years down the road is as high as 75%. That's male or female. It doesn't make a difference. Okay. Thank you. You're very welcome. Have a good um, night. You too. Bye. So I'm, I'm not aware of any gender specific stats. I don't I don't believe that it has if there is research out there that it has been researched enough to provide us with any kind of empirical evidence. Mm-hmm. I'm sure there have been some sort of clinical studies 
done on the difference between success and recovery as it relates to gender. However, I would say that just on the surface, that would appear to be an incredibly difficult kind of study to control because of all the variables all that the can var- come yeah. into the picture. Yep. So All the variables. All right, let's go to uh, Maria from Lake County. Hi, Maria. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. You're welcome. Um, I was calling because um, I'm in a treatment program, and I was wondering when a new resident enters the program, is it better for us as fellow residents is to take it easy on them from the start and gradually introduce them to the rules and regulations, or is it better to kind of just, you know, they come in the program and this is the way it's supposed to be, these are the rules, in order, them, um, in order for them to not uh, learn uh, leniency and petty permissions and get entitlement issues kind of things and have them know what they're getting into when they come in the doors, basically. Hammer away on them. The second they enter <laughs> treatment, you start hammering. No, uh, that might have been the old school <laughs> kind of day-top approach. But, um, of course, we should be lenient and, and understanding that, you know, this person is new to the process and, mm-hmm. um, you know, to, to kind of enact the human within you to say, you know what, this person needs to become accustomed to what we do before we're, you know, really going to start being rigid with an individual, um, being empathetic to their situation and, uh, you know, being understanding. We don't, um, as long as they're not hurting anybody, uh, there's no kind of eminent danger that we need to toe a line with. It's important to make a person feel welcome. They're engaging in a process that they may or may not have ever engaged in before. They're coming into an environment that's completely new and it's foreign. Um, there are new faces, people they've never interacted with or met. Uh, and it can all be very overwhelming coming through the gates for your first time. And so with keeping that in mind, I think it's very important that we practice patience and we teach um, without having any kind of rough or, or rigid expectations being set on this individual and um because that's not the goal right we don't right. Uh, we're not so prideful in our program that how dare this person come in day 1 and start breaking our rules but more <laughs> understanding that this individual is dealing with their first day or first week or whatever it is in a program and they still need to kind of learn the ropes so to speak so um you want to welcome them in yeah we the the goal is to make them feel safe uh, you know, happy that they're trying to take a step to do something new in their life and to feel mm-hmm. welcome, like the host said. But you also don't want to teach them bad. Uh, right? Yeah. yeah no, no, we don't. No, no, we, don't want we don't. We don't want them to. to te- <laughs> bad habit. The goal is not to teach them that it's okay to break the rules. But if a rule is being broken, the goal is to teach, teach. in a patient way that teach. You know, teach, this teach. is just maybe not how we do things here. Um, you know, and to teach in kind of an approachable manner so they're learning without, um, you know, really being tormented, so to speak. Right. Okay. That sounds, that sounds great. Thank you so much for all your help. You're very welcome. When all else fails, hammer away. We're, we're, we'll <laughs> okay, <end> got it. <laughs> Thank you so much. You're, You're welcome. welcome. Thank you. <laughs> that was funny. Uh Two, how much time we got, sir? Are we good? You got about five minutes okay. before I cut you off. All right. So we don't shy away from any questions, right? Any any question that's submitted, unless, I mean, unless it's 
drastically inappropriate. Right. Ask it. But uh, the question from Michael, um, what is the reason for sobriety when one enjoys using drugs? Sure. Can't help you. Yeah. If you want to use drugs and you enjoy using them, there's, there's, there is no reason for you to uh, enter into sobriety. You're only going to be kidding yourself. Sobriety is for when you have reached a point where you've decided that I don't want that you, lifestyle. You don't want to use drugs anymore, right? Exactly. So can't help you on that one. What there is kind of, and this isn't really help because like you said, ultimately it is contingent upon the individual wanting to cease that old lifestyle. Yep. But one thing that I will say to folks who are quote unquote on the fence, which is a big cliche we use in programs all the time when they feel like they haven't really made up their mind one way or the other as to what they want to do, is I encourage them to, you know what, try staying clean for six months, a year, whatever, uh, a period of time, and I'm just throwing out periods of time, but give yourself an opportunity, in other words, to see what your life is like free from drugs. Mm -hmm. You've already lived a life of drugs, and you know how you feel while Mm -hmm. you're living that life and what is expected in that lifestyle. Because then at least you give the, yourself the opportunity to sit back and compare the two. Mm-hmm. And whichever one you liked more or got more out of, you can then make that decision. So, you know, I, I often say this way you can you can put them both on a scale and you only live one life. You go ahead and choose the one that, that you got more out of because that's the life that you want to live. But you have to give the sober life a shot to be able to really compare the two. Mm-hmm. You can't just take people's word for it one way or the other. You have to experience You've it. experienced drugs. Now experience a life without drugs, and you tell us based on your experience which way you want to go. But you have to actually give recovery a, a true shot in order to make that comparison. Right. Todd wants to know, can a person relapse without using drugs? It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, in the field we talk about relapse on behavior you can relapse that into the, old behaviors and uh, that the relapse happens before right. the relapse exactly that yeah. the actual relapse happens before the moment you pick up take whatever drug you're mm-hmm. going to take so uh i guess technically speaking like would you lose your clean time in aa or mm-hmm. na uh <laughs> if you don't actually pick up but you're demonstrating old behaviors no you'll you'll still have your your chip they won't come after you for your chips but um yeah you you certainly can and in my opinion do relapse long before the time that you have actually made the decision to to use um i said we were going to ask any question that's not you know way 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 out there right and inappropriate to so listen to this one mm-hmm. this is from Johnny from San Mateo what is the matter with selling marijuana Great, great from, business venture. From one's home when it is deemed recreational. Now, now, he's calling from San Mateo, California. I mean, he's writing from San Mateo, California. Yeah. It's not deemed. It hasn't been passed as recreational drug in San Mateo, in, in California right. we'll yet. Just, we'll just, I, I'd like to answer this in one informative line. Mm-hmm. I would advise against selling or engaging in any kind of behavior that is federally illegal. <laughs> and we'll just leave it at that. If you want to roll your dice and, and play with the feds, be my guest. But uh, 
I would not bet on you as the winner for the outcome in that scenario. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> How much that's, time we got? A good one. You've got one minute. All right, real quick. Um, from Billy, no hometown. Why does marijuana magnify pain and suffering in memory? Interesting the way you phrased the question. Hmm. I'm. It's the first time I'm not aware of it magnifying pain. Although I won't. I will say that it's how it affects people are very different and unique. Right. You know, um, so physiological, physiologically. Yeah, physiologically, um, neurologically, but, that might be specific to Billy. But the memory issue we know is a is a slam dunk for everybody. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, you're not remembering a whole lot if you're smoking that daily. So. All right. All right, man, wrap it up. And this time, remember everything you'd like to say before I get into my clothes and you interrupt me like you like to do. Um. Good stuff with the uh, true Hollywood story. Uh, you weren't prepared, and, and, you, and you came through in the clutch. So, and we appreciate you sharing uh, your, your history, your personal history, and professional history. So that's pretty much all I got to say. And if you can, in the future, avoid uh, uh, putting anything out about the Warriors on the public airways, <laughs> um, I am more than welcome to share my story. I'm glad that I was able to do so. I cannot make any promises to not uh, bring anything about the Warriors, Giants, or 49ers on this show. In fact, I can probably make you a promise that I will uh, in the future. So, again, we would like to thank everybody who listened to the show today, everyone who's called in, everyone who gives us our continuous support and follows us. Uh, We really, really, truly appreciate it. Uh, We wish everybody a safe rest of the week and a fun and safe weekend. We will see you all next Tuesday.
That's our show for this evening. Thank you for listening. Be sure to listen to our next broadcast Tuesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on blogtalkradio.com forward slash OCG Radio. Like us, friend us, and follow us on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash OCGWorkCA and on Twitter at OCGWorkCA. You can listen to podcasts of all our shows on iTunes under Roach on Recovery or on our Blog Talk Radio homepage. This has been a presentation of OCG Recovery Radio. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.